Scripture. Mark chapter 6, verse 1 says, Then he went from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and among his own relatives and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. And he called the twelve to himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. And he commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he also said to them, in whatever place you enter a house, stay there until you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in that day of judgment than for that city. So they went out and preached that the people should repent. And they cast out demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And Father, we pray for the grace of your spirit to be receptive, to be attentive, Lord, that you would take away and minimize that which would hinder from us hearing the voice of your spirit speaking through what you've already spoken in the word of God in this passage in front of us today, Lord. We want to continue to worship you now as we avail our hearts to the truth of your word. So we ask, Lord, that you would have your way and speak the things to us that we need to hear today and that you would minister now by your Spirit's ministry to our hearts. And we ask this expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I think perhaps one of the greatest threats to modern Christianity is the idolatrous worship of our own human minds. There is this tendency to somehow, it seems, deem our own thoughts as the final authority. And let me just say, the power of human reasoning, what God has created in this piece of meat within our skull, is an incredible thing. The brain that God has given to us, the capacity that God's blessed mankind with to be able to use our mind to consider information, to understand things, to think, to process, to form judgments logically and reach conclusions is absolutely incredible. It's an amazing gift from God. But like many good things given to us by God, if logical reasoning is taken to an unhealthy extreme, it can actually become like an idol that we always bow down in submission to where everything that we accept, 
anything that we act upon must make logical sense to our minds. And so if we can't connect the dots mentally, or perhaps if it's something that we can't figure out mentally and our mind can't put the pieces together and, and we can't rationalize it and it doesn't make sense in our logical reasoning, then we struggle to be receptive to it. Because what we ultimately do is we put our mind on this pinnacle of the highest authority and somehow that our mind is the ultimate determining factor and our reasoning capacity matters most. And sometimes in doing such, we can dismiss and refuse what may be right or what may even be real and more real than our own logical reasoning. See, the problem is this can then become a major hindrance to the spiritual life because sometimes the logical mind taken to unhealthy extremes can interfere with faith. Look, we have to remember, our God is an awesome God. He's big. He's magnificent. He's so far beyond our human comprehension and our weak human limitations. And though God is often very reasonable and very orderly in the way that he works, he can also do things like miracles and he can work in unique and supernatural ways that might not make sense to my finite logical mind. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 11 of his deep knowledge and wisdom and judgments, and it says in his ways, which are past finding out, that sometimes even all that we can understand about God in our finite mind, sometimes his ways are above our ways, right? The Bible says his thoughts are above our thoughts, and that we have to reconcile that reality. The Lord's ways may not make sense to my logical reasoning, and that's where then the struggle comes. Will I still be receptive? Will I still be open? Will I remain receptive to the Lord if my logical mind is struggling with comprehending certain things of the spiritual life or about God? And this is the struggle we see happening in our text, where human reasoning in this passage was interfering with faith, and it was causing a challenge to the people who were struggling to receive from the Lord because their mind and their logic was what was hindering them from exercising faith. And it was their logical thinking that was making them struggle, and Jesus desired faith, and we learn from this passage that unbelief can to some degree rob us from experiencing all that the Lord wants for us. It can actually become an interference and a hindrance from his power, and our willingness to believe the Lord is the thing that contributes us, being able to receive from him everything he wants, to see what he wants, and to experience his power. Look at me in verse 1 as our text opens. It tells us there or excuse me, then he, Jesus, it tells us, went out from there and he came now to his own country and his disciples followed him. So after performing some miracles, we saw in chapter five around the Sea of Galilee in that region, Jesus and his committed followers visit once again here, we now see his hometown. When it says there, his own country, that phrase in verse 1 there, you see it, it's a reference to one's own community of origin. So we may reference that as his hometown. Your translation may in fact say his hometown. We know for Jesus, his hometown was Nazareth. 
which was a village or a city in the area of northern Israel. And that was the community not where Jesus was born. He was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in the village or the area in northern Israel of Nazareth. That was where he grew up. It was where he ultimately began to work, and he lived for a good 30 or so years of his life prior to the onset of his public ministry as the Messiah. So people in this area of Nazareth and in his hometown, they were familiar with Jesus. They were familiar with his family. It was sort of a small town dynamic. So they knew who Jesus was. They watched him grow up as a boy. Some of them grew up alongside of him. Some of them might have played flag football with Jesus. I don't know, possibly. But they knew who Jesus was. They knew who his family was in the community. It was where he even did work as a carpenter, as we read in our text, for some period of time, quietly living among them. And then after this 30-year span, Jesus' public ministry begins and all of a sudden now there's this major transition to this man who was a righteous godly man in the community but seemed much like everyone else among them to some degree and then his public ministry begins at the baptism of John the Baptist when the spirit comes upon him and he goes about preaching the kingdom of God all around Israel teaching them the ways of God, ministering to all classes of society, shocking some people that he would even interact with certain people who were despised among others. And Jesus was bringing about the love and compassion and the servanthood from his life to touch many people. He was doing mighty works, performing miracles that were shocking people, healing individuals, and his popularity has grown he now has crowds following him all around Israel and even has his own team of 12 disciples as well as some others on the periphery that are following him around everywhere he's going, assisting him in his ministry. Now, arriving now back, verse 1 says, into his hometown of Nazareth, we're told, verse 2, that when the Sabbath had come, as he's now come back to his hometown, that when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. So notice, as we see in the gospel records, Luke 4 in his account tells us that it actually became the custom of Jesus. That's the term that's used. And that word custom in Luke 4 speaks of a fixed habit or a regular routine. It was the fixed habit of Jesus on the Sabbath day of worship to go to the local synagogue, as we see him doing here in his hometown, and on top of going to the local synagogue on the Sabbath day to worship with the people, to have fellowship with others who loved God, Jesus often would routinely teach in the synagogues as well. And we see him doing the same here on the Sabbath day. After the scripture would be read aloud in the synagogue service, he would then give explanation. He would then begin to describe what the text was meaning giving further insight, fuller understanding, and instructing the people what the text meant in regards to living it out in their lives regarding serving God and honoring God individually. So Jesus now enters into that Sabbath day, that synagogue, and he starts to teach there in the synagogue. And look what verse 2 goes on to say. It says, And many, hearing him, were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? 
The idea seems to be the emphasis on his hands. How is this coming from him? Verse 3, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? The end of verse 3, look what it says. So they were offended at him. So being familiar with Jesus, knowing that he had never experienced any formal religious training in that day in Israel. He hadn't been to the rabbinic schools, knowing that they were very familiar with him as who he was and his family referenced here, what he did, his occupation. It was these things that stumbled their reasoning logically, and it ultimately, verse 3 tells us, it actually ends up resulting in them even rejecting Jesus and being somewhat bothered by him. If you look at the end of verse 3, again, look what it tells us. First, they're stumbled logically. The end of the verse says that they were offended at him. That is, they actually became somewhat irritated. They were concluding, come on, this really can't be credible. How is this possible that you could be the one doing this? This couldn't possibly be a work of God. This couldn't possibly be, it doesn't align with what we understand in our religious customs and ideas. How could this possibly truly be a genuine thing? We're told here in our verses that when our Lord Jesus was teaching by the direct power of the Spirit of God, as they were hearing Jesus teach the Word of God, it literally says, verse 2 there, look at it, it says, they were astonished. We might say their mind was blown. They were amazed when they heard Jesus instructing them from God's word, and they start asking among themselves, it says there in verse 2, where did he get these things that he's sharing? In other words, the understandings that he was able to, to give from God's word, the insights that he was communicating. They say, what wisdom is this that's been given to him? How has he gotten such spiritual wisdom? Again, they are baffled in their logical minds, knowing that Jesus, as I said, had no formal religious training, no formal religious education. Jesus had not attended the rabbinic schools in Jerusalem, learning from the great rabbis there in that day in Israel. Jesus, you know, he had not gone through, we might say, a process of Bible college or seminary. He hadn't been educated formally in that manner. Jesus hadn't learned the great oratory skills that many in that day would learn to be communicators, to be rabbis, to be teachers. There were whole schools that taught perfect oratory presentation to make sure that you sounded profound, to make sure that you spoke in ways that were really like a golden-tongued order. And there were those who actually learned such things if they were going to be communicators and everyone knew Jesus lacked, because they knew him, this traditional, formal religious training, that he had no traditional education from the scriptures, and it was perplexing them that he could still speak with such knowledge from the scriptures, and that he had such wisdom from God and insights, and they were saying, where's this coming from? How in the world is he able to communicate what they could not ignore was the evident spiritual dynamic and authority that was coming from Jesus as he was teaching the word of God. And they were also shocked, we're told, verse 2. Look at it. It says they were also surprised 
hearing of the powerful or mighty works, the end of verse 2 says, that were being performed by his hands. Again, think about it. As crowds would be following Jesus, going from location to location, you know that in those crowds, there were people who had been healed. There were people who had seen these healings and went to the next town because they wanted to see the next healing. So as he goes from town to town, everybody is talking and they're sharing testimonies. Man, can you believe what he did over there with that demoniac? Dude, that guy was out of control. And can you? And, and all of a sudden, everywhere he's going, people are talking about these mighty works and the miracles and the lives that were being changed by Jesus. And they were saying, how is that possible? How is he able somehow to be connected to that? How is such power to see lives transformed coming forth from his life? Notice their hang up in verse three. They say of Jesus, is this not the carpenter? Wait a minute. Isn't this our old carpenter from Nazareth who was with us for all these years and now he's going around? That word carpenter that's used there is a general term that speaks of one who builds things. So it might have been wooden furniture. It might have been doors. It might have been farming yokes that they would put over two animals to plow their fields. Uh, it might have been building structures. It referred to a skilled trade worker, or we might say a manual laborer, which means that for 30 years, Jesus, again, living in relative obscurity, just living righteously in relationship with God as Father was just a hard-working, manual, trade-skilled laborer who was getting dirty and sweaty and stinky. Imagine that happened. He didn't have a human body every day of his life as a common laborer, as someone who was just working and doing what he did to the glory of God as a carpenter, building things and repairing things. And boy, I look at that and I think to myself, what a fitting picture, because we have to wonder, as Jesus was building things and as he was repairing things, if he was not to some degree recognizing that one day that's what he would be doing with lives, that he would be building lives and shaping lives and repairing lives but to the people of his hometown, again, we have to put ourselves in their sandals. He's just a hardworking local carpenter. And to them, this was, was very difficult to grasp. First, it says that it astonished them, but it went from astonishing them to ultimately, we saw the end of verse 3, to offending them. They actually began to get angry, thinking, wait a minute, you don't have the credibility to do that. How could you possibly be doing such things in ministry? Their challenge, first and foremost, was this struggle with a lack of formal religious training and education. And let me say by way of application, sometimes people, I think, can dismiss or they can resist what God is truly doing because from their viewpoint, in their logical minds, they don't see necessary religious formality. So therefore, they wonder, how could this be something that God's doing? It doesn't have the religious look. It doesn't have the formality of what religious stuff's supposed to be like. How could this truly be God? And sadly, sometimes people dismiss a work of God. They dismiss individuals because they don't see that. You know, another thing I think that we can glean from this as well is they were struggling with Jesus not having formal training or formal education. Listen, can God work through formal education, 
through formal religious and spiritual training? Can he, can he orchestrate his plans and purposes through a person's life if they've been educated and been trained? Absolutely. But I think it's important to always remember as well, God also has many ways to educate people. God has many ways to train people for his work, and some of the most wonderful men and people of God who've been used in human history were some of those who were not formally trained. They weren't formally educated, but yet God educated them, and God trained them, and God prepared them, and God's spirit ultimately anointed them, and that's what made the difference. Look, God is much more concerned about the power of his spirit being upon someone's life than the form or the formality of a man or of a ministry. It's the power of God's spirit is what the people were recognizing as they were experiencing this impact. But that was a struggle for them. Another thing you could tell was a big struggle for the people logically with Jesus, as we referenced earlier, was just their familiarity with Jesus. They were struggling because of who they knew him to be in the flesh. Again, if you look with me in verse 3, what does the text tell us? Not only do they know him as their local carpenter, but they say also, verse 3, isn't this the son of Mary? We would say, isn't this Mary's boy? This is Mary's boy. They knew his mother. And then on top of that, verse 3 tells us, they also knew, notice, all of Jesus' half-brothers and sisters, his siblings, his brothers are listed there. They also say, are not his sisters here in town with us? Again, can I draw your attention to the fact that, and please hear me say this, that God's word, God's word refutes what is unfortunately an errant doctrine in Roman Catholicism that teaches the perpetual virginity of Mary. Does the Bible teach that Mary was a virgin who miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit the life of the Son of God within her womb so that she could give birth to Jesus as a virgin so that he could be fully God and fully man simultaneously so that he could be the God-man and the mediator between God and men to provide salvation as the sinless Son of God in a human body? Yes, and that's essential. But the Bible does not teach that afterward, that Mary perpetually remained a virgin. The Bible teaches, it's right there in front of you, the fact that after she gave birth to Jesus, that she and her husband Joseph had normal sexual relations and conceived other children who became half-brothers of our Lord Jesus. And look, this is important because this perpetual virginity of Mary is idea is something that's led to just an improper exaltation of who Mary really is. And it begins to get things off course. Was she favored of God, blessed of God, used of God? Yes. But when you begin to convey wrong ideas that go outside of the truth of scripture, you then begin to get a wrong emphasis upon a person where she's raised to an unhealthy status, where if you ask me, I think she would be embarrassed to some degree if she knew the over-exaltation put upon her in an unhealthy way when her last words were, whatever he says, listen to him. Those were the last words of Mary, pointing to Jesus. Now, sadly, we see with this familiarity with Jesus as a person, stumbling them, they're thinking, how could he, we know him, we know his family, how could he be teaching the word of God with such power and authority and wisdom? Well, one obvious answer is he was God. 
I think if God's teaching God's word, it's going to be a pretty powerful Bible study. He was God in the flesh communicating what his very word meant, and Jesus was operating in the fullness of the Spirit's power. You know, I look at this passage and I think to myself, sadly, notice many people who were familiar with Jesus thought they really knew Jesus, and they didn't. Can I say that again? Many people who were very familiar with Jesus just assumed that they knew Jesus, and they really didn't. They didn't know Jesus. And there are people today still, particularly in our American culture, who they're familiar with the person of Jesus Christ, and they think because they're familiar with him, they know him. That's a vastly different thing between knowing about Jesus and actually knowing Jesus. They, they knew things about Jesus, but they didn't know him. And that's a very important thing to make sure that one is concerned about coming to terms with that reality. Jesus said the one thing he's going to say ultimately from those who are separated from him eternally is depart from me, I never knew you. That there was no realization of a genuine understanding of who he was in a relationship. They actually, verse 3 says, were offended at him, literally became irritated that he was trying to do what he was because they were stumbling over being receptive to Jesus not just because of the lack of formal education, but the other thing that was making them unreceptive to Jesus is what? Was familiarity with Jesus in just who he was in the flesh. That was making them unreceptive. They're thinking, you really can't be credible because you're, I mean, you're just like one of us. We know you. How could it truly be you that is speaking to us on behalf of God and their familiarity made them unreceptive. And look, if we applied that to our lives to a degree, sadly, sometimes people's human familiarity with a person can unfortunately become the very thing that hinders and restricts their receptivity from what God may be trying to do through that person. And this can be a common dynamic that happens where someone lets their mind relate to a person according to who they are in the flesh and their familiarity with them in the human fleshly relationship, and they can totally become unreceptive to what God is trying to do by his spirit through that person, and they can quench the spirit. 2 Corinthians 5, I think Paul to some degree was addressing that. Listen to Paul's words. He said, therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. Do you hear what Paul's saying there? Paul's saying in the same way we once knew Jesus and related to Jesus in the flesh, but that's transitioned and changed. Now we know Jesus in the realm of the spirit. He's not here in a body of flesh anymore. He's saying in the same way, we don't regard fellow Christians according to the flesh. We don't relate to people according to the flesh, but according to who they are in the newness of being in the spirit and now being in Christ because their old life has passed and they're now a new creation in Christ. Look, why is this so important? Because here's this familiarity dynamic. Sometimes we make an error of trying to relate to someone in the flesh according to who they were at one time in their flesh when we used to know them in the past, or who they still are in the familiarity that we have with them in a fleshly relationship. And God's word says, be careful of that because the spirit of Christ is in them. 
And rather than relating to each other in our fleshly relationships, we should be recognizing there is a spiritual dynamic in a Christian's life, and it doesn't matter who he once was in the flesh, he's somebody different in the spirit now. And so I should be receptive and relate to him in that new way. And in the same way that though someone I may know them in a fleshly relationship, maybe we have a friendship, maybe we have a family relationship, but ultimately that's my brother in Christ and my sister in the Lord first and foremost, and I should relate to them not according to, I know you, I mean, I just, I know you, We're, but I should relate to them as they are a spirit-filled individual and the spirit of God may be doing something through their life and I got to separate the two. And I need to be receptive and open so that I don't end up missing the work of the Spirit. Don't let your mind mislead you because of logical familiarity and you miss the dynamic of the Spirit when the Lord ministers through a person's life. Jesus declares this is a spiritual reality that can transpire. Look what he says, verse 4. He says, I tell you, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and among his own relatives and in his own house. So again, sadly, Jesus says this just tends to be a struggle where people may not be receptive spiritually if they know someone well in their humanity. Amongst Jesus' friends and associates here in his hometown, it was happening. We've already seen in earlier chapters in Mark's gospel together, even his own relatives and his household were struggling to properly honor Jesus as a voice that was speaking on behalf of God, they would not honor the credibility of his ministry or his message. It's interesting to me in verse 4, Jesus there talks about a prophet is without credible honor. A prophet is what? One who speaks by the Spirit's power what God once stated. That's what a prophet is. A prophet is someone who proclaims God's word and gives God's message on behalf of God. Everything Jesus spoke in his ministry and his message was completely directly from God, but those familiar with him were letting their logical reasoning and familiarity with him make them miss the voice of God that was trying to say something to them in that moment. Due to their pride, they would not honor or receive what Jesus was saying to them because of the familiarity struggle. Now look, let me say to you this morning to encourage you, if that happened with Jesus himself, it may be a struggle you and I go through at times as well with people that are familiar with us. Friendships and family relationships, we may find sometimes that those closest to us with friends and family due to familiarity may not be receptive to us spiritually. And it may be that they just struggle with hearing the voice of the Lord, even if the Lord's trying to use you to say something to them or God's given you something to share to them, it may be that just because it's us, they're not receptive and they can't receive it and they're not honoring it. doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. It just is a reality of a spiritual dynamic that people struggle with at times. It happened to Jesus and notice, Jesus does not force the issue. He just acknowledges the reality. And he just says, this is a struggle at times that even a great servant of the Lord may find themselves struggling with. Jesus struggled with it. 
And we may find the same dynamic happens. Look what verse 5 goes on to tell us. It says, now he, Jesus, could do no mighty work there in his hometown, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, beginning of verse 6, and he marveled because of their unbelief. So notice, their lack of faith in Jesus basically limited their reception from Jesus. I mean, I think one of the, maybe one of the sadder statements in the New Testament, there in verse 5, look at it, that it says of Jesus, he could do no mighty work there. That's a sad statement. Now, granted, it's not that Jesus had a lack of power or was it was like kryptonite. He was restricted by his power because of their unbelief. And it's not that Jesus wouldn't do a mighty work there among them because he was frustrated or angry at their unbelief and punishing them for it. What this is conveying, Jesus wanted, I believe, to do a mighty work there just like he did mighty works everywhere else he went to. And he wanted to do a mighty work and help lots of people and heal lots of people and minister to great multitudes of people. The problem was simply because of their unbelief, many and most of the people in Nazareth, they wouldn't come to Jesus. They wouldn't be receptive to Jesus. And so in a sense, they were restricting the mighty work that could have been done because of their attitude of unbelief. They were robbing themselves from seeing a mighty work of the Lord in the town of Nazareth, because they wouldn't come to Jesus. Only a few of them, it seems, came, being open and willing to believe. And so, therefore, only a few miracles were told happened there, because only a few were receptive and seeking. And look, we have to realize God has chosen by his design to be responsive to faith. God, by design in his word, it's evident, chooses to act and work in accordance with Humans exercising faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Look, I will be the first to admit to you this morning, I don't mentally understand all the dynamics of how this spiritual reality works, how our faith connects with God's power or how our faith releases the power of God. What the Bible is clear about is that we must choose to cooperate with God in order to receive from God, that there is this cooperative experience where whether it's salvation or any other experience of God or power from God is that there's a degree of human cooperativeness that goes on with that. What the Bible also is very clear about is that faith is a powerful human response that God honors and that God responds to people's faith and he rewards faith with his power. We just saw last time together in Mark chapter 5, remember that woman who was healed with the issue of blood after 12 years, remember? So she went to many doctors, spent all the money that she had, and after all the efforts, nothing changed. She only got worse, and then ultimately she says, if I could just come into contact with Jesus. And ultimately, remember, she touches the hem of Jesus' garment, and she's miraculously healed, and Jesus says to her, remember his words? He said to her, your faith has made you well. He acknowledged it was her faith believing that Jesus 
wanted to heal her, that he would heal her, that ultimately Jesus commends, allowed her to receive that healing. Matthew chapter 9 tells us of two blind men who followed Jesus, crying out to Jesus in their blindness, have mercy on us, son of David. And listen, Jesus asked them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? To which they said, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, it will be done for you. Again, Jesus turned to them and said, do you believe I'm able to do this? Do you believe I'm able? To which they, yes, Lord, we believe. And then Jesus said, according to your faith. Again, he responded to their measure of faith. Look, somehow our faith, if we could say, unlocks the door of God's storehouse of power coming into our lives, whether it's saving a soul initially by faith, responding and receiving Jesus Christ and Savior as Lord, whether it's all the other ways we can experience God's power. And it is interesting, if you think of it, it's the exercise of faith, choosing to believe, which is the one universal capacity that every human being has. That's the one thing everybody can do. They can choose to believe. Even a small child can do such. There's lots of other ways that we don't all have the same capacity. But the one thing we all can do is we all have the capacity to believe. And so it's from that capacity that we do have that if we exercise belief that somehow it unlocks the door and the power of the Lord flows through and into our lives. And in the same way, the contrast is true. Unbelief or unwillingness to believe, choosing not to believe, the Bible seems to clearly show somewhat closes and locks that same door and to some degree can shut out what God may have wanted to do. You know, it's interesting if you look there in verse 6 where it says when Jesus had this encounter in his town, it says that Jesus, verse 6, marveled because of their unbelief. There's only two times in the New Testament that the Bible tells us that Jesus marveled. That is when Jesus was amazed, when they blew Jesus' mind, when Jesus was shocked and marveling at something, and it takes a lot to make Jesus marvel. The two times we're told that Jesus marveled, Matthew chapter 8, Jesus marveled at the great faith of the Roman centurion. Remember the Roman centurion, he came to Jesus, he was asking Jesus to heal one of his servants, and Jesus said, okay, I'll come to your house. And he said, you don't, you don't have to come to my house. I don't even deserve you to come under my roof. If you just say the word, it'll be done. Once you decide it, if you say it, Lord, I believe he'll instantly be healed right there in his bed. And says, Jesus marveled. I've never seen faith like this. This is incredible. And he marveled at faith. And now what do we find Jesus doing the other time in verse 6? He's marveling at unbelief. He's marveling. Oh, I can't believe that they won't trust me. I can't believe they won't believe me for what I want to do. Faith is almost like exercising, if you would, in creating a, I want to say, if I could use this little analogy, like, like, like taking away a cholesterol blockage so that from the heart of God, who loves people and wants to be gracious as the God of all grace, the heart of God wants to flow his love and his power and his kindness and his grace into our lives. And, and when we have faith and believe, it's like we open 
the pathway and there's no restriction. And when we have unbelief and we choose not to believe, it's like we create a cholesterol blockage from the heart of God and all his love and power, and it restricts and limits perhaps what could have been a more beneficial experience in our lives. You know, Psalm 78 rehearses the nation of Israel's history, and there's always been a phrase in there that's bugged me a little bit in Psalm 78, referring to unbelief. It says that God's people, listen, it says God's people limited the Holy One of Israel. That term limited in the Hebrew literally means they set a boundary for the Holy One of Israel. The idea there implies they limited what they believed God would be able to do. They set a boundary on what they really were willing to trust that God actually could do. And they actually set a boundary. This is the boundary. I mean, God can do that. But I mean, mean, he can't do this. And they set a boundary on God. Because of their unbelief, they limited by creating their own boundaries. It's almost as if here we see Jesus wanted to do what he did in every town in Nazareth. He wished to do great things for them. He wanted to do a mighty work among that group of people. But sadly, Jesus marveled that they were letting their logical mind minimize and put a boundary and a restriction on believing what the Lord was able to do. And it sadly hindered some of what he could have done for them in their lives. Boy, what a sobering reminder. Perhaps it is possible to say we receive at times less than what the Lord intends to do or could do, maybe less than God's best because of our own heart condition from time to time. And perhaps we could have experienced greater things or greater power. And I think it's an encouragement from a ministry perspective as well, that sometimes when we experience a lack of receptivity, to ministering to others, don't get so discouraged and think, oh, woe is me, I failed. Jesus was God, and there was a lack of receptivity. The problem was on the receiver end. It was their end. And so sometimes a lack of receptivity could be the case with those who were actually being tried to be ministered to. That was Noah's experience, Jeremiah's experience, and Paul's as well. Well, again, a little bit of unbelief didn't hinder Jesus. Verse 6 tells us that he then went about the villages in a circuit teaching. So here we see Jesus moving around, teaching Bible studies in different areas, kind of like a a spiritual, if you would, uh, delivery route. He's not just teaching the Bible in one location. He's going around and sharing the word of God, it tells us, like a delivery route, sharing the scripture, ministering in different locations. Verse 7 tells us he then called the 12 to him and began to send them out two by two, giving them power over unclean spirits and commanded them, verse 8, to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. So as in earlier chapters, Jesus now, he starts to expand the work of his ministry. He now sends out the 12 who he's been training, having served with him. He wants to expand the reach of his ministry. And so now it says, Jesus, there it says, verse 7, sends them out. Notice he prepares, he authorizes, he gives them their assignment, and then they just simply faithfully and obediently go out and embrace their assignment from the Lord as Jesus, it says, sends them out. You know, Isaiah declares, here am I, Lord, send me. The idea is be available. But the Bible also balances that by saying, look, don't be presumptuous 
and step out or be someone who went out until you know you've divinely been sent out. There are two differences. You want to be available, but you also want to know that you have been sent out by the Spirit of the Lord, that he's the one who's actually sending you on your assignment. And notice as they went as well, it says they didn't go independently, but it says Jesus sent them out how? It says he sent them out, verse 7, two by two. That is in partnership. Notice, two people embracing ministry work together. Ecclesiastes 4 tells us that two are better than one, for they have a good return for their labor, a better return. And again, the Bible teaches this value of ministry in partnership. Ministry in partnership, whether that's partnering together with our spouse, great ministry partnership. Whether it's ministering together in partnership with a fellow believer, we see this pattern in Jesus's ministry. In the book of Acts, we see Peter and John, right? We see Paul and Silas. And this is just a wise way to do the Lord's work because partnership lets us share in the workload. It provides accountability in the midst of the Lord's work. We have different giftings that we bring together. We can support one another. There's prayer ministry. There's encouragement. And ultimately, what it does, it helps us overcome things like discouragement. And even when the battle gets intense, two people can stand back to back and be much more effective as they function in partnership. Jesus also not sent them out two by two, but it says he also, verse 7, gave them power over the unclean or demonic spirits. And again, there's going to be resistance and spiritual warfare, so you want to know that you're not going in your own human power, but that whenever you're serving, you're serving in the power of the Lord. Now, the unique thing to take notice of, which would have, I think, contradicted human logic, in verse 8 and 9 there, we read that Jesus, when he sent them out, sent them out with clearly an indication that he wanted them to live dependently, to live dependently. You notice that Jesus wanted them to trust for provision sufficient because verse 8 says that he commanded them to take nothing for the journey. <laughs> he says, take nothing for the journey except, and then he gives a short list of bare essentials. He then says to them, don't bring a bag full of stuff. Don't bring excess food supplies. Don't bring extra money. And don't bring a change of shoes. That would have been tough for my wife if her and I were going out. Can't even bring a change of shoes. One pair. It's all you get. But again, the whole picture here is conveying going out with the bare essentials. Now, that would certainly, would it not, that would challenge human reasoning. Here he's sending them out on a missionary journey, and he's basically telling them, listen, I'm telling you, don't bring a whole lot of stuff. I don't want you to have excess resources. I don't want you to have all kinds of extra preparations at your disposal so that you're relying upon your resources or you're relying upon your sufficient stockpile of stuff or that you've accumulated enough money that you can make sure you take care of yourself. Jesus was commanding them to take hardly nothing for their ministry and he was not endorsing irresponsibility. It's not what he's doing. He's not endorsing irresponsibility. He's encouraging ministry, listen, in a spirit of faith. That they would do ministry in a spirit of faith. They would live by faith in dependence. Lord, you're sending us to do this. You're directing us to do this. So therefore, we're trusting if this is something you want to do, we don't have to have excess. 
We don't have to have sufficient resources. You're our resource. And if you want to do this, then you'll sustain us. Jesus wanted them, I believe, to seek God, and if I could say it this way, to believe God for stuff. To believe God for stuff. To believe that God would sufficiently take care of them and provide for them. And look, I can say this sometimes becomes a challenge and a hindrance for people stepping out and serving the Lord in ministry. I have seen numerous times over the years where there is too much mental dependence upon having sufficient or excess resources for money. And there's this over-American human responsibility where people struggle because it doesn't line up logically. Well, what's the pay scale going to be? Is there a retirement package with that? Are you going to how's all that going to work out? And how and and human logic and natural responsibility gets the best of people. And sometimes, listen, folks, if you want to serve the Lord, it's a matter of faith. You have to be willing sometimes to step forward in faith and trust the Lord to take care of your needs and trust the Lord to take care of what is necessary. I have found it true again and again where God guides, God provides. And to trust the Lord in simplicity, and sometimes it's the over-excess that people have that restricts them from doing ministry. Or there are people, I believe, who are truly, genuinely called of the Spirit of the Lord to be doing the Lord's work, and yet sometimes they will never step into the Lord's work because they just can't let go of a status of living or a salary or whatever. And, and, it, and it, it restricts people. It truly causes people to struggle. And here, Jesus is sending them out, and he says, listen, don't take excess. Trust God to take care of you. This is what he goes on to say, verse 10. In whatever place you enter a house, stay there until you depart from that place. As they would go out, they would receive hospitality. That was very typical in ancient culture. And here he's cautioning his servants to be grateful and to be content. He says, whatever house you enter, stay in that same house until you depart from the city. What's Jesus saying? Listen, don't go and stay in someone's house, and while you're there in that community ministering, find out, oh, I heard next door they got a jacuzzi. <laughs> or uh, the lady down the road, I heard she cooks the best Jewish food in town. Let's go stay over her. Jesus said, no, don't get like that. Don't have an entitlement mentality. Don't think just because you're doing my work and you're my servant that you deserve better. You deserve nicer. You deserve a higher standard. And look, let me just say, sometimes over time, I have seen over time people in ministry work where sometimes the Lord's workers begin overindulging the blessings of the Lord. And they start thinking they're entitled to newer, to nicer, to better. Well, I mean, at this stage, yeah, I was, I was a grunt laborer in the Lord's work. So, yeah, I didn't deserve anything. But, 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 but I'm further along now. And, and they start almost lacking the contentment and the gratefulness of the simplicity of the Lord's provision. Again, 1 Timothy 6 strongly cautions about that reality, even as Jesus says here, be careful of that. And he says, verse 11, whoever will not receive you nor hear you, again, they would be rejected too, when you depart from there, shake off the dust from under your feet as a testimony. That was a common thing they would do to say, look, I am not attached 
to what has happened here, the dust of the ground they were standing upon, if they rejected the message of the gospel and refused Jesus' offer of salvation, Jesus said as a testimony to them, shake off the dust from your feet, show them, look, we are not accountable, we've given you the truth, you've chosen to reject the truth, and Jesus then goes on to say, surely I say to you, will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And we know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. But notice Jesus says there is a day of judgment coming, and those who've clearly rejected Christ, he says it will be more tolerable to have happened what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah than on the day of the judgment, having rejected Jesus Christ. Now, with that understanding, verse 12, it says they went out and they preached that the people should repent. So with this burden for a day of judgment and souls being punished for their rejection of Christ, they went out and preached that people should, it says, repent, life change, metanoia. It means to have a change of mind, which leads to a change of behavior and a complete change of the way of one's living. Mark chapter 1, Jesus' first sermon was repent and believe. Turn from what's wrong, turn to the one that is right, to God. And the implication as they went out and preached that people should repent is that the messages that Jesus asked his servants to go out and to speak were noticed. They were not motivational speeches. He said, no, what I want you to do, because eternity is at stake, I want you to go out and tell people what's wrong in their lives according to the standard of God's word. Let them hear the truth. Let them recognize the error of their own ways and tell them God wants them to change and tell them that God can change them and that he'll forgive them and that he doesn't want them to live the same. Now, you know as well as I do the logical mind doesn't want to go out and say that kind of stuff to people. The logical mind would much rather give motivational speeches. But Jesus wants them to realize, look, it's not about being logical. It's about loving people and doing what's best for them and being obedient and honoring God. And so they went out and conveyed this message to the people. And verse 13 says, and they cast out many demons, as Jesus had given them the power of that, we saw. And they anointed with oil many who were sick, and healed them. Now, the only time we find in the Gospels this concept of anointing with oil is right here in the Gospel of Mark. The only other place we find that concept is in James chapter 5, where it says, Is anyone sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the idea of anointing some with oil, biblically, the type or the symbol of oil is a representation of the Holy Spirit. And so anointing someone with oil as you prayed over them for their healing was an expression of the recipient's openness to the work of the Spirit coming upon their life and touching them with power and with impact. And so out of obedience to the Word of God, without overthinking the process, if we have a need of healing or if we're asked as the elders to pray for someone and anoint them with oil without overthinking, well, how does this work again? Does the oil become like medicine? And No, just don't overthink it. It's I'm open to your healing, Lord. I'm open to your Spirit's touch upon my life, and we pray and we see what God might do in regards to healing. Boy, so much of what Jesus is asking his servants to do in the text does not align with conventional reasoning but they still did it. And let me say to you this morning, perhaps the Lord is calling you to serve him in some way 
Don't get lost in logic. Walk by faith and see what the Lord may do. Let's stand together.